Well, good morning. The reading this morning is from Ezekiel, chapter 45. Am I on? And we are on page 878 of the Pew Bible. Now, we're going to have the story twice, not because I've got a stutter or I'm thick, but I think it'll become obvious once I've read the Pew version, and then the same story from the message. So, 878 in the Pew Bible, Ezekiel 45, 1 to 8. When you allot land as an inheritance, you are to present to the Lord a portion of the land as a sacred district, 25,000 cubits long and 20,000 cubits wide. The entire area will be holy. Of this, a section 500 cubits square is to be for the sanctuary, with 50 cubits rounded for open land. In the sacred district, measure off a section 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 cubits wide. In it will be the sanctuary, the most holy place. It will be the sacred portion of the land for the priests who minister in the sanctuary and who draw near to minister before the Lord. It will be a place for their houses, as well as a holy place for the sanctuary. An area 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 cubits wide will belong to the Levites who serve in the temple as their possession for the towns to be lived in. You are to give the city as its property an area 5,000 cubits wide and 25,000 cubits long, adjoining the sacred portion. It will belong to the whole house of Israel. The prince will have a land bordering each side of the area formed by the sacred district and the property of the city. It will extend westward from the west side and eastward from the east side, running lengthwise from the western to the eastern border parallel to one of the tribal portions. This land will be his possession in Israel, and my princes will no longer oppress my people, but will allow the house of Israel to possess the land according to their tribes. Now the same passage in English. (laughs) When you divide up the inheritance of the land, you must set aside part of the land as a sacred space for God approximately seven miles long and six miles wide, all of it holy ground. Within this rectangle, reserve a 750-foot square for the sanctuary, with a 75-foot buffer zone surrounding it. Mark off the... Sorry. Mark off within the sacred reserve a section seven miles long and three miles wide. The sanctuary, with its holy of holies, will be placed there. This is where the priests will live, those who lead worship in the sanctuary and serve God there. Their houses will be there, along with the holy place. To the north side of the sacred reserve, an area roughly seven miles long and two and a quarter miles wide will be set aside as land for the villages of the Levites who administer to the affairs of worship in the sanctuary. To the south of the sacred reserve, measure off a section seven miles long and about a mile and a half wide for the city itself, an area held in common by the whole family of Israel. The prince gets the land abutting the seven-mile east and west borders of the central sacred square, extending eastwards towards the Jordan and westwards towards the Mediterranean. This is the prince's possession in Israel. My princes will no longer bully my people, running roughshod over them. 
They'll respect the land as it has been allotted to the tribes. A very good morning. Very good morning. My name's Dave Van Welcome. And, uh, oh, there we are. I had a wee look at you when uh, Roy was reading from the NIV and then as he says in English and there was, uh, there was faces like this, there was faces like this and then progressively the mouth went and, uh, and was, because uh, this is not easy stuff. We are going through the book of Ezekiel, glory ravaged, and we're actually coming out the tail end of it. This is glory revealed. I feel every week I need to give a summary, but I'm, I'm not going to do that as much just now. But in effect, what has happened is that God has removed His glory from Israel, and that meant that, that Jerusalem fell. First ten tribes by the Assyrians, and then now the two tribes of the south by the Babylonians, and they're taken into captivity in Boniem. We know the song, By the Rivers of Babylon, we sat down. That's all based around this. And you have visions. This is the third vision of Ezekiel. A young guy who was 30 when he was taken in the first group to leave uh, the southern kingdom of Judah into Babylon. 30 is an important age for him because that was when he was just about to take up his role as a priest in the temple. He'd been preparing for it. He obviously comes from the holy Levitical line. And now he has been removed from the center of his universe, the temple in Jerusalem. And he sits by the Kebar River, uh, one of the rivers in Babylon, lamenting Jerusalem. And now that he has heard that Jerusalem has fallen, his world and the world of those people who are in exile has just imploded. Because if Jerusalem has fallen, the temple is destroyed completely, then there's nothing to go back for. And the nations look at it as being Yahweh, God, has been defeated by his enemies. And this is what's going on in this whole story of Ezekiel. And God is removing his people because of their sins. He's casting judgment on them because they have decided it's my way and not God's way. He doesn't just do that to his people, but he does it to these small seven city-states around about uh, Israel because God places judgment on them also. But the beautiful thing that I will always remember about Ezekiel is that God, in his pre the first vision that you see where, where Ezekiel tries to describe in chapter 1, with the likeness of the glory of God, departs from the temple and goes to be where the people are. Those people who are sitting by the rivers of Babylon lamenting, God and His glory goes to be with them. And that is the God I know who comes to be with us wherever we may, we may be. So that's, that's a, a very quick summary of Ezekiel, even though I wasn't going to do it. And um, in my initial thoughts when I read this, this section 40 to 48 is the final section. Next week we're going to do 47 and be finished with the book of Ezekiel. Um, but 45 is important. And it's important to see that the whole of Scripture has something to teach us. And we are going to briefly look into cubics and 
and all of that division of the land as Ezekiel sees it in the kingdom of God. And yes, some of you are never going to get your next 30 minutes back in your life. <laughs> Will there be a, a real distribution of the land um, in time like Ezekiel sees it? And as part of the distribution among the tribes of Israel, will there be a special district of, for the Lord, as, as Roy read it twice? Will there be a holy section of the holy land? And who are, who's the prince? We actually are introduced to the prince, the chapter before, if you ever want to look at that, in chapters 44, uh, 1 through to 3. And it seems that he, the prince, gets a specific place, a specific portions of uh, the land as Ezekiel sees it. And the princes, as Roy described, the princes who now will change in this new kingdom. Up until this point, these princes or these rulers have taken advantage of the people and have not led by example, but led for their own gain. So what causes these people to be fair and honest? This is some of the questions I had when I was reading this. And my intention was to do the whole of chapter 45. And then I decided I would bite, I would have bitten off far too much than I can chew. Before we go into what I've, I want to center on, I do want to, uh, and I spoke about it last week briefly, of how you interpret uh, apocalyptic writing like this. And I want to give you four alternatives and then say where I'm going to go. Four alternatives of how people, good, godly men and women, born-again women, read these verses. And, and this is it. Oh, that's not the one, Rona. That's last week. <laughs> ah, you're all right. Rona, we love you. We think you're great. I know. <laughs> Is that us? Okay. I'll go for a timely glass of drink of water. I don't care. It's fine. It's okay. I'm going to read this and then I'll throw it up. Four ways of interpreting these. Two are literal ways of interpreting chapter 45, actually 48, 48, and two symbolic ways. And the first one, this is why I wanted to put it up on the screen because it's very wordy. The f ah, you're a lovely girl. That was four weeks ago, Rona. No, I'm not kidding. It reminds me of the minister who preached a sermon, and then the next week he preached the same sermon, the next week he preached the third sermon, but it was the same sermon, and then a fourth week he preached the same sermon again, and his elders went to him and says, Pastor, you've preached this same sermon for four weeks, we're going to lose the church, you, you need to preach something different, and the pastor looked at him and says, when you do what I have asked in God's word, asked you to do, then I will change the sermon. <laughs> anyway, I'm not going to do that, I'm going to go with this. So the first way of looking at it, is the literal, prophetic, short-term interpretation. I told you it was all very wordy. Basically, that means this. What we read here literally is a blueprint of the temple after Israel are returned to the land after exile. And there are many godly men and women born again 
who, who read these words literally. So they are preparing the temple. They are preparing the garments for worship. They are preparing all of that in the Middle East just now. They're looking for a time when worship can be fully restored in Israel among God's people, the, the ethnic group called the Jews in Israel as they read it here in Ezekiel 45. Then there are those who see what we've just read here as symbolic Christian interpretation. Basically, this is symbolism number or symbolism one, where everything here written as Ezekiel sees it in a vision form it shall be fulfilled in the church and that we are living through this just now and it will be fully finished, it will be accomplished when Jesus returns in the new heavens and the new earth. So everything that you're reading, we're seeing it today in some sort of form as Ezekiel is seeing it in this vision. The third way is what they call a dispensationalist interpretation. So this is a literal interpretation number two. And it's like this literal prophetic short term, except it's not short term. Here lies the belief that in a literal fulfillment at the end of the expected millennium where Jesus will reign in the earth for a thousand years, this will take place. And again, many godly men and women, much brainier than me, believe and look at the whole times that we are going through just now through that lens. And then finally, as I race through this, you have this prophetic, apocalyptic interpretation. And that's a symbolic way of looking at it, number two. And there are many different ways of reading the Bible. We know that. There are, there are narratives, uh, there are prophecies, there are laments, there's poetry, there's prose, there's parables, there's proverbs, there's letters, and there's apocalyptic writing. And we know that there's a section in Daniel and Revelation and three chapters in Isaiah. So this understanding, this symbolism is like number two, i.e., this is all symbolism that Ezekiel's seeing but in the life of the church. It's similar to that, but not just symbol-laden in relation to the church. Ezekiel is actually given a vision of what it would be like, and the way he describes it is how he sees the world. So I don't believe Ezekiel would ever imagine the sight before my eyes, and what a beautiful sight it is. He wouldn't. Men, women, sitting together under God's word, being led by a shepherd and not a priest. Jew, Gentile, free slave, clean, unclean, whatever. This vision before us is a New Testament vision, is a, a kingdom of God vision. I'm only here because I experienced Jesus' age 15 and my life was changed. I'm not here because my family heritage brought me here, and I would say very few of us would be in that, uh, uh, that, that idea as well. We are here because one way or another we're invited and we're, we're being nice, or we're here because we're compelled to come and worship the one and true living God. This is a vision of the kingdom of God, all Jack Tamsin's bairns. And this is the sort of vision that Ezekiel was seeing, but the way he describes it, because his whole life is built around this, is temple, sacrifices, days, times, allotted land, people, and right at the very center of that, the presence of Yahweh, the one true living God. So this prophetic, apocalyptic interpretation is built around this idea 
that Ezekiel is seeing what will take place, but he's seeing it in old covenant terms. But really what he is seeing is new covenant terms. New covenant being, as we sang at the beginning, it's all because of the blood of Jesus and what he did in Calvary. So that's the way in which I'm looking at these verses. And this whole journey into Ezekiel has been a journey for me as well. I try and stay away from this end time stuff. I just know that Jesus loves me. This I know because the Bible tells me so. But we're forced to explore it. And I like this idea that Ezekiel is seeing a vision from the Lord, but he's seeing it in his terms. doesn't make it any more real. Actually, it makes it all the more real for Ezekiel as he sits by the rivers of Babylon's and laments. And God comes in a third vision when he is at his lowest, when he can do no more. And God says, I have not forgotten you. This will take place at the appointed time. I think it's quite wonderful. This Levitical priest ripped from his homeland, from Jerusalem, from the life he has lost, from the promised land, is given a sign, a vision, a vision like no other of something actually quite weird and wonderful. And this vision of the kingdom of God for Ezekiel would have been quite weird and wonderful as well. So with that thought, and before you fall asleep, I'm going to just quickly go through um, some of the verses here and then finish with one central thought that's been on my mind as I've read this all week and weeks prior to this. Wow, this is hard to see. This is roughly how it's all broken up. In here is the kingdom district with uh, the place for the, the Levites and, and the priest uh, and the, the prince and the temple in the center. And all this is a district. And then above it, you've got seven tribes and below it, you've got five tribes. You can read all about it in Ezekiel chapter 48, 2 to 7. It's one of those lists that you skim over. But that is what Ezekiel is seeing. That's the very thing. And as you get even closer in with a magnifying glass, come on. This is how he describes it. All very square. It's got its portions. There's nothing out of place in the center. Remember, up here is seven tribes. Down here is, and down here is five tribes. And right in there, specific size, square, ordered, is the presence of the glory of God with the priests who serve, the Levites who have got provision from themselves, the prince who borders all of that and even pasture areas and a piece of the city that's for everyone. That is what Roy has just described. If you were to do a color chart, that's what it would look like. The prince's area will border each side of the area formed by the sanctuary of the city. It will extend westwards from the west side and eastwards from the east side, running lengthwise from the western to the eastern border, parallel to one of the tribal portions. And we note that a very sacred piece of land is given for the priests in verse 4 who minister in the sanctuary and who draw near to minister before the Lord. We rightly ask ourselves, because we would easily skip by this, What's going on here? Should we anticipate that this is how the Holy Land will be broken up in the future? Is this is what we've got to look forward to? Or is this how Ezekiel 
imagined it? Or is this how God came along? As God knows how to come along and meet, we, meet us where we are and give you a vision in the way in which you would understand it. Not, that's my subjective truth, none of that nonsense. But I'm talking about God comes, and I would imagine God would give Elaine visions that are quite artistic. Why? Because she thinks that way. That's who she is. It's, it's something very precious to her. For Eddie, God might come along and give Eddie terms to do with cattle and land and order and care and nurture. The, Psalm 24. Psalm 23. <coughs> Psalm 20. Thank you. And um, Psalm 24 is a lot different. That's what God does. And that's what I think is going on here. So with these, here's my thoughts. I think there's a bit of theological geography going on here. All this has a message. For us, all these centuries later, we miss it. So we rely on very brainy men and women who are full of the Spirit to open this up. But if you read Deuteronomy chapter 6, a very important passage of Scripture of the law given to God's people as they've came out of exile and are about to go into the promised land, you will see similar commands, instructions for the people. They're going into a land full of people who have got their own gods and got their own boundaries and they've got their own way of life. And God is saying, I know what you're like, guys. When you go in there, you must follow me with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Don't intermarry. And he gives reasons for all of this. Be separate. Be a light to the nations so that the nations will come and see how your whole life is ordered round the presence of God, and they will seek the one true and loving God. If you become just like them, you will do just that. Become just like them, and my glory will depart from you. Deuteronomy 6 is brilliant at unpacking all of that. And, and here, you've got that same theology of God got to be the sec in the center, and it's theological geography. And the first thing is this, Nothing less than perfection will do for God. Why doesn't God just allow us to go our own way? If he truly was a loving God, why can he not just forgive us our sins without any consequences? And we know that those of us um, who've heard the gospel know that the, the less loving thing would be for God to just let us go our own way. And that he will pursue us until the very last ruach, the very last breath of God leaves our body. Why? Because of his love. And nothing less than perfection will do for him. You see here, order, perfection, rules, regulations. The second thing is that God is to be absolutely central to his people. We have got compartments in our life. Beware when we put them in a level playing field and we say, I'm going to do less of this. I'm going to do more of that at the expense of spending time with God. And thirdly, and furthermore, the centrality of space reserved for God's home right in the middle symbolizes the whole of life. Everything, the, the tribes above, the tribes below, the priests, the prince's area, everything is dependent on him. Everything belongs to him and he is the giver of good things. So today, 
This is the so what part. Today, nothing has changed in this respect. God seeks our whole being. Everything. He'll, he'll do that. He'll seek us to the very last breath for our heart because we know that's where our treasure is. Eric loves cooking. Eric cooked a wonderful meal for us at the Craig Vrack last night. If you've never been, you must go. I mean that. And Eric's passion is his restaurant. But you know one of the very first things that Eric did when he got his restaurant? He asked for a blessing of God in the restaurant. Why? Because he knows that God is a giver of good things. And he knows all too easily he could sacrifice his family and his relationship with God to achieve his goal. And that's his dream of his restaurant. That's his heart. And he's very good at it. And I think it's a God-given thing. But he understands the pull, the selfish pull. God seeks our whole being. He always has. And he always will. Why? I'm going to come back to the simplest thing I could ever say. It is because he loves you. I'm sorry if that's old hat. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. If it falls off you without even giving you a little goose bump or restore, Lord, the joy of my salvation. God loves you. This is the message that is at the heart of the New Testament. It's the message that it's at the heart of the whole universe. If you had been the only person in the world, Jesus would have died for you. I think it's, I think it's, it's as personal is that Jesus loves you that much. In fact, Jesus loves you that much. His love is unconditional. His love is wholehearted. His love is continual. It's the greatest love that you can ever imagine, and that's the reason for the cross. It's God's amazing love for you, and at the age of 15, as I said earlier on, when I did not expect it, out of the I was not seeking it, I don't think, out of the blue, while many others, even my contemporaries who were rejecting God, that understanding of the cross completely changed my life forever in an instant. I didn't plan for it. In an instant, God pursued me, and at that moment, Actually, when I needed him more than ever, he came and he demonstrated his love. The head knowledge made the 14 inches or whatever it is to my heart and became the heart knowledge. We're going to sing a song uh, after this, the song being Jesus, Be the Center. And it says, be my source, be my light, Jesus. Jesus, be the center be my hope, be my song, Jesus. Be the fire in my heart, be the wind in these sails, be the reason that I live, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, be my vision, be my path, be my guide, Jesus. Jesus, be the center. In that singing of that song, we are saying, Jesus, be the core. Be the core, and core means the central, innermost, the most essential part of my living. 
of, of, of everything to do with me and exercise the core of the muscle groups underneath the fat in the abdomen here. Literally here. In science, the core is the nucleus of an atom. In geology, it's the mass which is 3,231 miles under the surface of the earth composed of nickel and iron. In business, it's something that you do which meets consumer needs. It's hard to imitate and can be leveraged to many products and markets. In other words, it's pizza for Pizza Hut. That's the core of their very business plan. Good pizza. And they're in competition with Domino's, etc., etc. And my question that I've had all week is I've read this and I've been saying, Lord, what should I do with this? This is hard and I don't know where to go and I don't want people to fall asleep me again and all of that. And the, the very thing was, speak on this. What is your core? And I say that to those who would consider themselves to be born again Christians and those who, who aren't. What is your core? What's the central, innermost, and most essential part of the life, the defining center around which all of the rest of your life orbits? Because everything works from the core. Jesus called it the treasure. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And it describes finding him as a precious peril or the treasure. Something that's wonderful that you would go and sell everything to buy it, to purchase the land, to have it. Everything works from the core. Be my source revolves around the core and my light, my hope and my song is revolved orbits around the fact that Jesus loves me. When I get up in the morning, it's a fire in my heart that keeps me going in ministry, the wind in these sails, the reason that I live. Do I love my family? Absolutely adore them. Am I thankful for, for, to God for them? And do I try to, my, my, by the grace of God and the mercy of God, try to be a good dad and a good husband? Of course I do. But I know that I would not have my family if it was not for Jesus. I, I, I know that I would not be married to Miranda if it was not for Jesus Christ. End of story. And my vision and my path and my guide for all of life is Jesus because we do, do not know what's going to happen when we walk out those doors. But by faith and trust that he is with us, he comes beside us when we need him to the place where we are and comes us alongside us is the hope that many of us have for the difficult situations that we're working through just now and that we have in the future. So at the heart of Israel, the land and all the portions of it and the, the plots that are allocated is important here because it shows for Israel, it shows for Ezekiel as he is away from the land, he's away from resurrected life, he's away from the source and the presence of God he sees a vision where it will all be once again revolved around him. In the land, so it will be physical. It won't just be the spiritual, airy-fairy stuff. It will be physical, tangible, real, and it will affect our finances. It will affect our businesses, our pensions, those we love, those we, who are our enemies. It will affect everything, and Ezekiel has this. 
And the significance of all the rest of the stuff all comes from the core. All comes from the very center. So if God is the center, and I've got one more slide, and I'm going to fire it through it very, very quickly. If God is to be the center, the Bible then challenges us to this. So those of us here who would claim, who would know ourselves to be a disciple and apprentice of Jesus Christ, or Jock Tamsin's Bairns, whether it's been a few months like Otto, or whether it's been for years like Alan, this is what Scripture commands of us. If we are to live prosperously, not just here. Remember, Jesus says, you know, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You're going to have all of these difficult situations. But even in amongst difficult situations, to live prosperly, prosperously with hope and peace that God is with us and he knows, and also in the age to come in the new heavens and the new earth, we are commanded to do these things. Follow Jesus. Come follow me and I will make you. We know it. That is in our hearts, most of us. And it is an invite and a promise. Also a command. We're to obey as Jesus obeyed. Jesus says in John 15, if you keep my commands. Remember the word right at the beginning of that is if. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love, Jesus is our example. And He says, come follow me. Come follow in the dust of your rabbi. Love as He loved. Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He keeps the hard part to the end. Give as he gave. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. We lay down our lives for our families. We lay down our lives for our children without a shadow of a doubt. But Jesus includes all of us as in family. And he says, lay down your life for your brothers and your sisters. Sacrifice for them because you would like them to do that for you. Forgive as he forgave, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, and endure as he endured. John 6, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. I know that you know this, And maybe I am being like that urban legend of pastor that keeps on reminding this congregation the same things that every single week. But it's the truth. (laughs) Whether it's for Dorothy or Jesse or for Elaine, the situations will be different, but the single principle will be the truth. Jesus, be my source, be my light, be my hope, be the wind in my sails, be the very reason that I live. And from there, send me out. Send me out. Let me live my life. The the world is my oyster. Bring me back to the days when I was 15 and I really did believe that I could conquer the world. 
bring me back to that youthful exuberance that I would die for you, Jesus. Bring me back to the days when I was in Central Station as a 16-year-old with six of my apprentice workmates before me and I was singing cheesy American songs in a shell suit. <laughs> I did. Not in my own. With hundreds, literally hundreds, listening. Bring me back to those days where I went to my leader and said, I'm scared to do my testimony. Six of my workmates are there. And my leader says, tell your testimony and then I will go with you and we'll go and speak to your workmates. Take me back to that abandonment. Take me back to the days where my, my bags are packed because every sermon should be an X-rated sermon. Take me back to those days. That if the congregation don't like what I'm saying, but it is the word of truth, then they can sack me tomorrow. Take me back to those days. Well, I don't care about my house and my salary, etc. etc. Take me back to that. Let's be guided by Ezekiel's vision. Ensure that God is at the center. Because it's quite easy for us to be at the center. It's quite easy for others, things to be at the center. Good things. God is a jealous God. Take that how you will. Submit to his reign. Submit to the reign of the Prince of Peace who will never abuse his people. Give ourselves to worship God as his redeemed people. Be glad, be grateful that we will be represented in that feast of the ingathering. And let our lives be holistically as is portrayed in what is quite a symbolic chapter all around. Do many different things, many different shapes and sizes, and yet revolving around the centrality of the presence of God among his people. Jesus be the center. Shall we pray together? Father, I thank you that you know us. It says through Jesus that you know the very number of hairs in our head. And even our, in our most thoughts, you know. Lord, have grace and mercy in the name of Jesus, I pray. Father, draw us closer to you. Lord, may the door be opened. And may we find and treasure and covet that precious peril, that wonderful treasure of knowing Jesus. May it transform our lives. May we be the people that you've called us to, a light, the hope of the world. And in everything that comes back to us, Lord, I pray that you would continually direct us to give it back to you in worship. In the name of Christ Jesus, the name above every name, amen.